Good morning, everybody. Um, how are we doing? Good. Only heard a couple people say you're good. So a couple weeks ago, um, I was preparing for a house church discussion that I was leading in. Uh, I found myself kind of fixated on these two verses, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but if you're somebody that has read through the Bible, oftentimes you read the same verse over and over and over, and then there's that occasion where you have a new encounter um, with a certain verse. You have uh, a new encounter with God with a certain passage of Scripture, um, and that's kind of what happened with me. Uh, those verses were in Genesis 3, of all places, um, kind of a strange place. I wouldn't have ever thought that that's where it would be, but... Uh, they're in verses 8 and 9. Um, so these verses, they're the, first, they're the first words that we see spoken uh, after Adam and Eve eat from the tree. They're the first, it's the first reaction we get to see from God after that happens. And so uh, in a way, you know, there's kind of like a lot of suspense around what's going to happen. Like Adam and Eve have eaten from this tree, you know, sins entered the world. It's like what's going to happen next? What's God going to do uh, so if you want to flip there, we can. It's just two verses. We're not going to stay there for too long, but it starts in verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This is an amazing picture of the kind of God that we serve, amazing picture of, of God. I feel like a lot of the times we kind of have this skewed view of who God is. We have this view of God as a God who is angry, as God of a God who is just this vengeful God who wants to, who lives to kind of punish sin. And, and, and we don't see that here. We see God ask a question. Now, think about this with me. The nature of a question is such that it's it's engaging. It's engaging in nature. When you when you ask somebody a question, you're you're it necessitates a response. You're engaging that relationship to whoever you're asking that question to, right? And it's also a question, it's continuous in nature. What I mean by that is when you ask a question, what you're doing is you're continuing the conversation. The conversation it, it signifies when you ask a question that the conversation is not over. The conversation is going to continue. And so God, He asks this question. Even after Adam and Eve sin, even after Adam and Eve rebel, after they disobey, God asks this question. This question signifies that the conversation is not yet over. God could have chosen to just end it all right there. I made these people. They did the one thing that I told them not to do. But that's not what he did. He said the conversation's not over. I'm committed to this conversation. I'm committed to this thing. I'm committed to my creation. And the question that he asks is so incredible, too. He asks the question, where are you? Now, at first glance, you know, you might not think there's much to that. And, you know, there's a lot of people who might even read this and think, you know, I'll put it this way. You know, when you're, when you're a kid and you're in trouble and, you know, you're, let's say you're hiding from your mom and dad and they kind of ask, like, where are you? Like, where are you at? And you're hiding. That's, that's not the picture that's, that's, that's being painted here. It's, there's, there's so much more behind this question of where are you. It's, it's to me, when I read it, I sense this sadness in God's voice, this, this sorrow in God's voice. It's, it's this question of, of where are you? It's also the first moment in the Bible where someone alludes to the fact that something has gone wrong. It's the first time in the Bible where somebody alludes to the fact that things are not the way that they ought to be. 
he asks, where are you? It's like he's asking, where are you? We're usually together. Where are you? We're usually here. Why are you hiding? We, we're usually here. We're together. What, what happened? It's, it's this, this sense of sadness. And, and God doesn't ask it because he doesn't know where they're at. He, he asks it because he's, it, it hurts God's heart that, that this thing has happened, that this thing called sin has now entered the world, and now things are not the way that they ought to be. And I want us to kind of hang on to that phrase today, that, that phrase of things not being the way that they ought to be, and then things being the way that they ought to be, things being returning to the way that they ought to be, because we're going to talk about that a lot. So I want us to hang on to that. And I think from that moment on, the, the, whole, the whole reason really that, that we have the rest of the book of Genesis and the whole reason that we have all the other books of the Bible, really the whole reason that we're sitting here talking about these things today is because of the fact that God asked that question, is because of the, God, the fact that God said, I'm going to continue this conversation. This conversation is not over. And when I say the conversation, I mean God's plan. I mean God's relationship to us, his relationship to creation. It's not over. He's committed to it. I want to tell you this, and I need, I need to get this before we go any further. God is more committed to bringing things back to the way that they ought to be than you could ever imagine. As much as we have that desire in our heart, as much as we long for that, God is more committed to doing that than you could ever imagine. So whatever it is that you're coming here today, I... Every one of us, we, we know that feeling. We all have that, that understanding. It's this innate understanding about us. As, as human beings, we share it in the human experience that things are not the way that they ought to be. And that probably looks different for all of us. Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever lost someone? Have you ever went through heartache? Have you ever been through despair? Things are not the way that they ought to be. That's not what God had in store. That's not what God intended. God did not want for us to be afraid. God did not want for us to, to have fear. But it is probably the most widely known, accepted, and experienced truth that we have as human beings, that things are simply not the way that they ought to be. But God is committed to fixing that. God is committed to bringing things back. To, to make, he's committed to making all things new. And so that feeling and that knowledge that things are not the way that they ought to be, it's left us with this hunger and this thirst. Like I said, it's left us with a longing, a longing for things to return to the way that they ought to be. Now, there's a lot behind that phrase, the way that they ought to be, and we're going to get into that. But that's kind of what we need to, to focus on to set the stage for our text today, that hunger and that thirst for things to be the way that they ought to be because right now they are not the way that they ought to be. God's, God has done something about it, and God is doing something about it. He is in the midst of making all things new. But as we stand here today, things are not the way that they ought to be. So the text that we're going to be in, if you want to flip there, it's Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. I'll give you a second to flip there if you brought your Bible. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So if you've been here the last few weeks, really the last couple months, we've kind of been in the book of Matthew, um, going back and forth between various chapters. But the last couple weeks, we've been in this part of Matthew chapter 5, which is called the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes, they fall within this bigger bucket called the Sermon on the Mount, um, but, but, but that's where we are right now, so just a little bit of context. Uh, Brian, last week, he spoke on the verse right before this. Had a little problem here. He said we didn't have this thing anymore. Shouldn't have that issue. Um, sorry about that. 
So Brian talked last week uh, about verse um, 5, and it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And before Brian got into his message too much, he kind of he kind of uh, told us that we needed to reshape the way that we think about the word meek because a lot of the time we think of the word meek and we just think of like kind of people who just get like slapped around by life. Like people who are, yeah, maybe humble is a way we can describe it, but really kind of like weak people. Like meek people are like weak people who just kind of float through life and, and he kind of reshaped our thinking around that. I think we need to do the same thing around this word called righteousness, because I think there's a lot of uh, things that probably come in our mind when we hear the word righteousness that I, I think miss the big, the big point of what this text is going for, of what Jesus is going for when, when he says that we should hunger and thirst for that. So what are some things that we most often think about when we think of the word righteousness? Um, what I kind of, what first comes to mind for me, uh, we think of piety, we think of moral uprightness, uh, we think of holiness. We think of kind of like, kind of just like doing the right thing, like being a good person. Like if you're righteous, you're you're probably somebody that does the right thing. But but it's so much more than that. And if we just use that, I feel as though we'll walk away from today really missing something that God wants us to grasp. Um, and so we're going to use a different definition. Um, that's okay. I'd rather it be that way. Um, we're going to use a different definition. Uh, the definition that we're going to use is from a man named Joseph Henry Thayer. Uh, and Joseph Henry Thayer, I don't know if you know that name. He, he is uh, the person that wrote the Greek lexicon of the New Testament a uh, long, long time ago. But we're going to use his definition because I feel like it really gets at the heart of, of what Jesus is going after here. And his definition of righteousness, our definition of righteousness, is this. The state of him who is such as he ought to be. Now, the reason I like that definition is because it's really broad, right? You're kind of like, you hear that and you're kind of like, well, what does that even mean? Like, the state of him who is such as he ought to be. Well, what is that state? How, how should we ought to be? It, it opens up a much broader conversation, a much, a much broader list of, of questions and ideas around this word righteousness. And that's what I want to do. Um, so I'm going to pause for a second and kind of give a little bit more context. I, I already mentioned the fact that the Beatitudes, which is where we find our text today, is within this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, really what it was, is it was Jesus giving this countercultural message. Um, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see a lot of stuff like this. Jesus says a lot of things like, you've heard it done this way, but I say this way. You've heard this, I say this. These people do it this way, I tell you do it this way. You, you kind of see a lot of stuff like that. And so uh, the Beatitudes really fall in line with that. Jesus is going through verse by verse, all these blessed are's and these they shall's, and he says blessed are, and he kind of gives like things that you wouldn't think people, like, he, he, for example, he says blessed are those who mourn, and it's like, wait, blessed are those who mourn, how are you blessed when you mourn? He kind of gives this, this countercultural, uh, this countercultural teaching, um, and really what the Beatitudes are, they are a description of what people who belong to God's kingdom look like. They're a description of what citizens of the kingdom look like. A couple months ago, I gave a message on the kingdom of God, and I don't know if you were here, but if you weren't, I'll kind of give a little bit of a recap. What we talked about is we talked about the fact that the kingdom of God has these, like, two dimensions. Like, this, it's dual nature. It's, it's here and now, but it's also, like, not yet, if that makes sense. It's, it's here and now. Like, we get to experience the kingdom here and now because Jesus has come, because Jesus died and he was raised, and the Spirit has been given to us. And so, in that sense, we get to experience God's kingdom here and now. But there's also this other sense, this kind of not yet, where 
we haven't yet experienced the, the fulfillment, the, full, the fullness of God's kingdom. Because there's coming a day that God has decreed, coming a day where all things will be made new. Just like I said, where things, where, where everything that is not as it ought to be is going to be made right. But we haven't, we're not there yet, right? We, because of the fact that we still are experiencing and still feel the fact that things aren't the way that they ought to be, we're not there yet. And so with these verses, that kind of dual nature, this kind of two dimensions carries over into these. So what you'll see is within all these verses, it starts with blessed are, and then there's a second part, and it either says for theirs is or they shall. So that they shall, that's where there's kind of those two natures. It's when, when Jesus says, for example, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What he's saying is they shall be satisfied here and now, and we do get to be satisfied here and now because God has given us his spirit. God has given us contentment. We, we get to be satisfied here and now, but there's also, we have that longing, right? We have that part of us that's still longing and waiting for something different, so we're not yet fully satisfied. Now, I know that kind of sounds, you know, it might sound a little bit, weird at first that, that God doesn't fully satisfy us. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that God doesn't fully satisfy us. I'm just saying that where we are in time, where we, where we are at on this timeline of things is we haven't, we haven't reached the, the full fulfillment of God's plan. We haven't gotten to the time where all things have been made new. Jesus is in the, in the process of making all things new, but we're not there yet. We have this longing. And so ultimately, I think what Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be satisfied. I think what he's saying is, blessed are you here and now when you hunger and thirst to be as you ought to be, because it means you've realized <laughs> that you're not as you ought to be. And so therefore, you realize your need. We cannot ever be satisfied until we realize that we have a need. We realize that we have something in us that, that needs to be changed, that needs to be that needs to be fixed, that needs to be renewed, that needs to be transformed. We will never be satisfied until that's the case. I feel like when I read this verse, I can almost feel Jesus saying, blessed are you when you experience that hunger and thirst, when you experience the fact that things aren't the way that they are supposed to be. Because I feel it too. Jesus felt it too, and Jesus did something about it. When God asked the question of where are you in the garden, when God asked the question, where are you, it's because he felt too, he felt it too, that things are not the way that they ought to be. Because of what sin did, because of the consequences and the ramifications, things are not the way that they ought to be, and God was committed to making all things new. Now, please, as, I, as I'm talking about this, please don't think that I'm saying that that the gospel doesn't give us a hope for here and now. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say that, that the gospel doesn't provide, doesn't provide a hope for us here and now and doesn't provide satisfaction here and now because it definitely does. But man, what a greater eternal hope. What, a greater, what an even greater future hope the gospel provides for us. The kind of satisfaction that Jesus is talking about here that future satisfaction, that they shall be satisfied, that future satisfaction, like we don't even have words for that. We don't even have, there's not even a good way for us to really talk about that because we haven't ever experienced that kind of satisfaction. But I do think that opening up the conversation around that is a good thing. And, and this is actually what we did uh, at House Church. You know, we started to talk about like, what, what do you think it was like? What do you think it was like before separation, before sin, before the fall? What do you think that was like? And so I'll ask you guys, and you guys can throw out some answers. Like, 
what do you think, what do you think that was like? What do you think we experienced? What do you think Adam and Eve experienced? It's all right. Take your time. Peace. Yeah. Anybody else? Freedom. Yeah. No shame or guilt. Yeah. Intimacy with God. Perfect love, yeah. Joy. We could probably go on, but you know, I feel like opening up that conversation and talking about those things of what it was like, even talking about what do you think of the day-to-day looked like, not even just you know, some of the things that we mentioned, but like, what do you think the day-to-day was like? What do you think that would have been like to walk with God? Like God was walking in the garden with him. What do you think that would have been like to, be, to have that kind of communion with God? It would have been incredible. And it was taken from us. Sin fractured that. So when, we talk, when, when I say, you know, that, that Jesus is making, returning things to the way that they ought to be, all of those things, that's what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about perfect love. I'm talking about no shame. I'm talking about intimacy. I'm talking about communion. I'm talking about peace. Simply put, what sin did was it, it well, take that back, backtrack for a second. What it would have been like is, is simply put, no sin nor its consequences. And so, therefore, no death, no fear, no fear of any kind, no fear of rejection, no fear of harm, no fear of, be, no fear of uh, not being liked, no fear of, of not being loved, no fear of not being accepted, no tears, no mourning, no uncertainty, no anxiety, no guilt or shame, ultimately, no separation. But I guess more than the lack of those things, more than, more than the absence of sin is like what would have replaced all of those things, right? Instead of death, life and life in abundance. Instead of fear, confidence to approach God and be as we are. Instead of tears and mourning, fullness of joy like Randy said. Instead of anxiety, rest and peace. Instead of shame and uncertainty, perfect knowledge of who we are and who God is. And instead of separation, perfect communion with God. And I think that is the key. That's the key to things returning to the way that they ought to be, is communion with God. That's why things were the way that they ought to be before the fall. It's because we had a perfect communion with God, and that's why... Things right now are the way that they are, are not as they ought to be. It's because we, we don't yet have that perfect communion with God. We do have communion with God. We do have access to the Father, but it's not, it hasn't reached its fulfillment yet. And so we will always, from here until that day, we will always have that hunger and that thirst. We will always kind of taste those consequences. We will, we will always be, be longing for things to return to the way that they ought to be. God knows more than anybody what that feeling is like. He knows it so much that he ended up coming here. He left his place in heaven. He ended up coming here, and he ended up dying. 
He ended up living a perfect life. He ended up dying the death that we deserve to die, and he was raised. All over Scripture, we see, we see it plastered everywhere that, that there is just this innate sense that we have this thirst for things to return to the way that they ought to be. I'm going to read some verses here that talk about that thirst that we all experience and, and, and God saying that he's going to fulfill that for us. In Isaiah chapter 55, it says, Come to me, all who thirst. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. John chapter 3, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 4, 13 through 14, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Another place in John says, The spirit of the bride said, Come, and let one who hears say, Come, and let one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. Revelation chapter 7, verse 16 to 17, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Revelation 21, 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. See, Jesus has and God has an answer to that thirst that we all feel. God has an answer for that, and it's simply himself. It's simply being with him. It's simply communion with him. You see, all those verses, so many of them said, Come to me, all who thirst. Come to me, all who are hungry. There's another verse that says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. That thirst, that feeling that we have, that things are not the way that they ought to be, the only thing that can quench that is by coming to him, is by being with him. And the way that we can be with him here in this world is by having his spirit within us, right? When we put our faith in Christ, when we believe that he came and that he died for us, the Bible says that we are given his spirit, right? We are given his spirit. Another thing that I want to mention is, is, is Jesus. Like I said before, he is so committed to returning things to the way that they ought to be, and he feels that so much more deeply than we all did. Shortly before Jesus took his last breath, he actually, he, he utters two words very simply. He says, I thirst. Now, there's probably an aspect of that when he says, I thirst, that's simply he was thirsty because I'm guessing they weren't very accommodating to him. They probably didn't give him any food or any drinks while he was carrying the cross and while he was up on it. So there's an aspect of it that's just, yeah, he's thirsty. But then I think that there's also this aspect of it that's kind of getting back to Genesis 3, kind of getting back to where that first initial feeling of that thirst and that hunger for things to be made right, for things to be the way that they ought to be. So I think when Jesus says, I thirst, I think he's saying, I thirst so badly for things to be the way that they ought to be, for my people to be with me, for creation to be the way that I intended it to be. But when Jesus says it, it means so much more because as he's saying that on the cross, as he's saying, I thirst, he's doing something about it. Him 
being on the cross, him doing what he did, he's doing something about it. See, we have that desire, we have that hunger, we have that thirst, but we can do nothing about it. We can do nothing about it, but he can and he did, and he gave us a way. He gave us a way to where that thirst will eventually be satisfied, to where that, that feeling in us that things aren't the way that they ought to be, that that will be wiped away one day. The Bible makes very clear that that answer to that hunger and thirst is to simply come to him and to be with him. If you also go back to the very beginning of Genesis, you see in verse 2 that the Spirit of God is associated with water. In verse 2 of Genesis 1, it says this. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of of the waters. So all those verses where Jesus says, come to me all who thirst and I will give you drink. Come to me all who thirst and, and you will never be thirsty. If you drink the water that I give, you will never thirst again. The spirit is associated with that water from the very beginning. And so that thirst that we have, what's going to quench it is the spirit of God being inside of us, the spirit of God living in us. Because that's how, while we're here in this world, that's how we are one with God. That's how we have communion with God is the spirit. Fast forward to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, the, the Spirit of God, that's what's going to quench that thirst. Being with him is what's going to quench that thirst. The very last verse of the Bible actually ends with, with John, the writer of the book of Revelation, saying, come, Lord Jesus. Now, when he says, come, Lord Jesus, that's, that's an expression of what I keep talking about. That's, that, that's an expression of that feeling that's in us, that hunger and that thirst for things to be as they ought to be. He's saying, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, because I am looking forward to that day so much. I am longing for that day so much. Do we long for that day, or are we people who are like really content in this life. See, I think sometimes, you know, we're pretty content with the way things are here. We're pretty content with, we, we think that, I think some days we think, yeah, things are probably as they are, as they ought to be. But they're not as they ought to be. So much was taken from us. So much, we lost so much in the garden when, when our spiritual parents ate from the tree. We lost so much. I mean, we could talk about it all day. We lost so much. And I don't know where you're at today. I, I do know, as I said, that, that I know that if you're a human being, then you share in that human experience with me that we have that feeling that things aren't the way that they ought to be. And I don't know if you've tasted, if you've had your thirst quenched by what the Bible promises will quench it, which is God's Spirit. I don't know if you've ever received that, but I want you to know that, that God is more committed to making things right than you could ever be. 
So maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I just, I feel like life's falling apart. I feel like things are just, things are just not the way that they're supposed to be. Let me tell you, God wants to give you something. God wants to give you a drink. God wants to quench that thirst. And it's not something that's beyond this life. Like I said, we, we get to have that satisfaction. We get to have that thirst quenched while we're here, but not in full, not yet. So let me just invite you today, if you have never tasted from that, if you've never tasted of that, of that water, of, of God's spirit, of being one with him, of having communion with him, it's a free gift. It's a free gift, and all he says that you have to do is come to him, and he'll give it freely, and you will get to experience what we lost in the garden. I'm going to pray for us, um, and then I did this a couple of times ago that I taught, but I just want to remind us that this mic is up here, um, and I like to provide a little bit of time to, you know, because I think sometimes maybe the reason that we don't use it as much is we feel like there's a time constraint, but I want to just remind us that this mic is up here, and if you're new, um, what this mic is here for is it's here for you. It's here for everybody who's not up here with a mic on their face every Sunday. It's here for, for them to come up and to encourage us to, to talk about what's going on in your life, to talk about what God's teaching you, to, to talk about those things. So I just want to remind us that it's open. Um, and so if anybody feels led, it's here. So if you'll pray with me. Oh, Father, we just... Uh, we just come to you today um, knowing that, Lord, things are not the way that they ought to be, but, Lord, we come to you so thankful and so just in awe of the fact that you've done something about that. Lord, you have, you have done something to make all things new. Lord, you came and you died and you took our place and you did what we could never do. Lord, you gave up the one thing that would quench our thirst, Lord. You gave up, you gave up communion with the Father so that we could have that. You were forsaken so we would never have to be. So, Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would just, you would just provoke a longing in us, a healthy longing for the day that all things are finally made new, the day, Jesus, where you come back, the day where, as Revelation says there will be no more tears, no more mourning, no more crying. And Lord, you tell us that you will dwell with us and that we will be your people, that you will be our God. Lord, we, we look forward to that day. But Lord, we also know that you've given us, you've given us a hope for today. So Lord, let us not forget that. But God, let us not get so hung up on the here and now that we forget about the not yet, the amazing things that you have in store for us, the amazing things that, that you are going to do. Lord, we, we don't even have words to comprehend it. We don't even have words to, to talk about it. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you just for, for who you are, for what you've done. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.